know, for me, it really amazes me how something really familiar can change in an instant. The Bible, it's, it's often referred to as the living word, and um, that, that was really real to me this week, this past couple weeks, as a verse that I'd heard many times before took on some new life. It's a simple phrase, and uh, it's, it's kind of the go-to for Sunday school slackers that are trying to get a memory verse last minute because it's two words. And I've committed it to memory. In fact, can we just commit it to memory right now? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five says that Jesus wept. There you go. There's a win for the day. It's an easy thing to commit to memory, but it's really powerful. And despite its uh, grammatical simplicity, I think it has quite a bit of depth. That, week, that uh, day a few weeks ago when I was reflecting on it, it really struck me that Jesus was crying. No, he was weeping. And why would Jesus be weeping? Not just tear up, but, but crumple up and, and weep. What emotions was Jesus feeling in that moment? And how could the son of a powerful God be emotional in such a temporary moment? These words suddenly became more than a trivial fact to me, and there was something much bigger. They brought me to a new level of realization of who Jesus really is, who Jesus really was. He was human. Is it possible that Jesus could have experienced the same exact emotions that inflict us as average humans as we go from our day-to-day life? And if so, what are the implications for those who follow him? Now, to understand why Jesus wept, let's take a look at the events leading up to his emotional outpouring. So Jesus just got done. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He fed 5,000 people with a bit of bread and fish. He healed a man who could not walk. He gave sight to a blind man. And right before this, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he claims that he and the Father are one, that he is the temple that's going to be uh, raised up. This really infuriated the religious leaders in Jerusalem to the point where they began to plot against his life. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus knew that going back into Jerusalem would set in motion his death. So in John 11, starting in verse 17, it says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah and the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly, went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and he saw the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. He calls him from the tomb. He walks out looking like a mummy with, with band-aids and all those types of things, but he's fully alive. It's amazing. Now, reflecting on that story and looking at the fact that Jesus wept, two things really stand out to me. Number one, Jesus is a perfect display of empathy. He shares the emotions of the grievers that could have been over, easily overpassed. Jesus has moved to the point where he's suffering with them. He fully understands what's going on. He fully feels what's going on. And depending on your translation, it says things like his spirit was moved, he was angered to suffering, or he was troubled. The second thing that stands out is that Jesus was, an authentic, was authentic in his emotions. Now, it wasn't a contrived emotional reaction. It wasn't an act. The pain that Jesus felt was real. He did not ca- it did not cause him just to tear up, but again, it caused him to weep. He joined in the sorrows on account of his friends and their family, and his reaction was authentic. It was real. It was raw. My whole life, I've known Jesus, but the idea here really struck me, that God not only understands our sorrow and our emotions, but he also experienced them. In our lives, we can experience sorrow and suffering in a few ways, right? That's to say, we can be the ones in the middle of suffering. Maybe you're experiencing it right now, the death of a loved one, a mistake made, a sickness. Or maybe you're observing someone else going through a tough time right now, a friend, a coworker, or somebody that God has put into your life. So let's take a look at the first example here. What is an impact of having a God that truly understands our emotions? I want to share a few facts with you that uh, illustrate the bigness of God. I love space. It's awesome. I love NASA shirts. I love movies about space. If the Space Force ever becomes a real thing, I probably won't be the first thing or the first one going, but I'd I'd like to think I was. Um, I'll wait to go to Mars till there's good food and safety there, but I, I like space. That's the point here. Now, Voyager 1 is currently the furthest probe in space, and on September 5th, 1977, NASA launched the probe Voyager 1, and on September 12th, 2013, NASA officially confirmed that Voyager 1 had reached interstellar medium. I didn't know what that was until I looked it up, so it's okay if you didn't either, meaning it took over 36 years for it to leave our solar system. And its maximum speed was 38,610 miles per hour. Pretty fast. Now, the closest star to Earth, other than the sun, is Alpha Centauri. And at the speed that Voyager 1's traveling, it would take about 70,000 years for it to get there. And that's just one star. Astronomers and scientists 
guess that there's about 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and in each of those galaxies, there could be 100 billion stars. So that's a really big number there, 100 billion, trillion, something. It doesn't matter. We can't comprehend it, right? It's a really big number. There's a lot of stars out there in the observable universe. Now, I'm going to give you a second to get there because it's going to take a while, but let's picture yourself in the furthest out galaxy and the furthest out star. Are you there? Now, from there, zoom in to where you're sitting right now. And that's how big our God is, and that's how amazing it is that he's present here right now. We could use any number of illustrations to take a look at this fact. There's 7.5 billion people in the world right now. You're just one. Or you could ponder the stretch of infinity, one side of never-ending to the other side of never-ending. But we have a big God. And the fact is, despite our small stature, God is present. God loves you, and emotions matter. He cares about your emotions. Jesus knew that going to Jerusalem would set into action his death. He understood the suffering that would take place because of his actions. And he also had a comprehension of the limitlessness of the creator, of time, of his father's power. And despite knowing all these things, he cared in that moment, in that exact moment. He took the time. He observed the sorrow, and he was moved by it. Jesus wept. In Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I think you can know this on a, a, as a knowledge that God's there. But sometimes in the middle of it, suffering can feel like an abyss. Have you ever felt like just one of the billion stars in space that no one could relate? But our God knows exactly what it is to be sad. He's experienced sadness. He knows exactly what it means to lose someone. Our God knows what it is to be hated by his peers. And he understands the burden of taking the world on his shoulders. In our suffering, God is near to our hearts. He feels our pain. And our hearts are in his hands. In the book of Lamentations... It starts with the people of Israel reflecting on a a, a horrible situation they're in. Their city's been physically taken from them. This was their promise from God. And it's been taken from them. They can't imagine a worse existence. In Lamentations 3, the author starts by describing a very colorful language, the suffering that he's seen. It says in 331 through 33, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever, though he brings grief He will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. God is good. Our God doesn't want to see us suffer. We have a God that truly understands. And he took on the stature of a human and felt the whole gambit of what it meant to be human. So we can never truly be alone in our misery. Life can be very good, right? There's a lot of good things going on. Maybe life's going really well for you right now. I hope it is. 
And we have a lot to be thankful for as followers of Christ. Right now, I, I have a lot of joy. I have a six-month-old Hadley, and she finally like recognizes me when, she, when I get home from work. She crawls, and she smiles, and she doesn't really care that I'm a dork or anything like that. She, she just loves me. And many of you that uh, have kids know that feeling. People that have kids in their lives know that feeling. Um, and there's a lot of things to be joyful about. But despite that, we, we can be in the middle of joy, but we live in a broken world. And the reality is we're going to run into broken people, even if things are going amazing in our lives. So I want to look at what that means. If we're followers of Jesus, how do we react to others' emotions? I'd like to propose that Jesus' reaction to Lazarus' family and friends is a call to our authenticity. Have you ever asked someone how they were doing and you expected the, the routine answer, like, yeah, I'm good, but they got really real with you? They're like, no, I'm doing so bad right now. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about it. can be kind of shocking, but you got to respect the honesty, right? What was your reaction? Especially if you're having a good time, it's, it's hard to pause, take yourself out of that and be authentic. You probably all heard the cliche Christian answers to suffering. If it was uh, the show Family Feud, it could be a, a category. We pulled 100 Christians, and the top three answers of cliche responses to grief are, ding, number three, what's God teaching you? Ding, number two, well, God works in mysterious ways. And number three, ding, it's in God's hands, everything will work out. You know, those things might be true, and I think there's conversations to be had around all those, but in the, middle of the grief, in the middle of grief, maybe that's not the best thing for me to hear. It can seem somewhat dismissive or unauthentic if we just leave it at that, if we don't invest. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. In his book, A Grief Observed, he's reflecting on the wife of his death, or the death of his wife, and um, it, was, it was tragic for him. What Lewis says is, talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about life, or talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Our culture is a culture of fixing things. <clears throat> Often we approach sadness as a problem to be fixed. And it's okay. Sometimes things don't have easy answers. That's hard for us. But sometimes things just don't have easy answers. And our job as Jesus followers isn't to fix people, isn't to fix everything. If our words are just simply aimed at a quick solution, they can be dismissive. As Lewis puts it, maybe you just don't understand. Healing can take time, and the important thing is God's doing the work. We've got to remember that God's doing the work. Our greatest asset could possibly be simply our presence, just being there. Now, presence does come at a price. Sometimes it's not easy to be there. But I want to reflect on Jesus, and certainly he had things on his mind, right? Going, into, going near Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen as he raised Lazarus from the dead. But yet, despite knowing all that, 
his response was real. He paused and he mourned with those who were mourning. To the point where his opponents, his enemies, even realized his authenticity. In fact, some were even confused by it. He's performed all these miracles. Why is he, why is he crying? Doesn't he, doesn't he understand? You know, being truly present can, can show people that they're not alone and that God loves them. And I think if we react in that way, if we're with people, people are going to notice. They'll notice how we care for others' emotions. Now, I can draw on my own personal experience. I've, I've been there before. I may have talked about it before, but my darkest time was uh, right after college. I, I graduated. I checked all the boxes. I went to school. I worked hard. I got good grades, but I was unemployed for a year. And I felt so much shame about that. I felt like I wasn't good enough to get a job, and my days were just filled with countless rejection. And I began to see my friends around me finding success on social media. They were celebrating, going on vacations with all the success they had. And I felt so lonely. So many times, well-intentioned people would come up to me and and give me responses like, keep at it. You can do it. It's going to happen. It's all in good time. And I think those things were true, but it's it's not what I wanted to hear. The thing that was worth gold to me was the presence of my friends and my family, just to sit there and be there with me through life. The problem with loneliness in our generation, uh, it's, it's not going away. I think it's, it's actually a problem in our culture. You've probably, if you're on social media or if, if you read, read articles um, about our culture at all, you, you've probably seen some things I say that the millennials, this generation, is the loneliest ever. In an article published in Forbes called Why Millennials Are Lonely, it says, the general social survey found that a number of Americans with no close friends has tripled since 1985. Zero is the most common number of confidence reported by almost a quarter of those surveyed. And likewise, the average number of people Americans feel that they can talk to about important matters has fallen from three to zero. That's shocking to me. So many people have nobody, zero. That number's shrinking. And I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it's, it's a byproduct of the culture we live in kind of separated from people online more than ever. And there's a lot of good things that come with that, but it's not going away. We have an opportunity to represent, pe- represent Jesus to people who are lonely. Often it just takes our presence. And earlier I said it was costly. Our presence can be costly. It takes time. Time's valuable. Time's money. Time's all these different things, right? It's all we have. But I also think it's costly not to invest and not to be present in people's lives. Because the further removed we are from others, the more lonely we get. So there's a cost on both ends. Can you genuinely listen to people? Can you be present? Then you can represent Jesus in that way. In Romans twelve fifteen, it says, Rejoice with others who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. We have this opportunity to be real and authentic with people. And the beautiful thing about life, just as I mentioned earlier, is it's not all downs. Oftentimes, every sorrow comes with a joy. 
And the more we're there for people, the more we get to rejoice in their lives. We get to rejoice with people who are rejoicing. As a community, others' joys become our joys. We celebrate and answer prayers, and we get to laugh together. The more we're present, the more we get to celebrate. Through Christ's example, we have even more reason to be joyful. When I authentically engage in your life, the feelings of jealousy and inadequacy quickly fade away into the celebration of your successes. Now, our vision at the Vine is uh, everyone belonging to a joyful, Jesus-centered community of world changers. Joy encompasses emotions. Joy is something that's lasting. And I am thankful that we get to rejoice together as a community. Praise God for all the good things he's doing in your lives right now. And as we invest in each other, we get to celebrate those. Now, I want to end with this. If you're here today and you're feeling alone, Jesus wept. He lived a life of real emotions. He's not a distant God. He's right here next to you. He loves you. If you just reach out, he's there. Emotions matter. Emotions should matter to us as Christians tremendously. I didn't, I didn't ever realize how big emotions were and how, how much of a part they played into Jesus' life until I reflected on this. And, and emotions should matter to us. He understands every single one of them. And as things get lonelier and as we spend less time together, maybe they matter more than ever. As followers of Jesus, we have a beautiful example of what it is to be authentic. That's part of the community we're trying to create here. Joyful, authentic, modern, engaging, and safe. Authenticity is evident in the way we treat others. We can really make a difference in our community. This community will be different. And the Tri-Cities as a whole and the surrounding areas, if we're authentic with people and present, it grows, it builds, and people notice. Even our opponents, even people that don't believe the things we believe, even people that have been hurt will notice the difference that authenticity and the value of emotions has. So that's my encouragement today. If you're feeling lonely, you're not alone. If you're a part of this community, let's engage joyfully and authentically with people. As we go out today, I want to pray over you, and uh, we'll have a wonderful Sunday. Dear God, thank you so much for being a God who understands us. Thank you so much in all your bigness that you are near. We pray that as a church, we learn to engage and be authentic together, Lord, and that as we go out this week, we can be your light in the world, Lord. Thank you so much for this beautiful day. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.